I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned, chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Angel Donovan here with episode 52 of Dating Skills Podcast. This week, we're looking at biology. More specifically, we're looking at testosterone and how it affects your confidence, your drive, your intent, and other aspects of dating, sex, and relationships. To talk about this topic today, testosterone, and more importantly, raising your testosterone naturally if that's applicable to you, if it's going to be useful to you, okay? So that's an important if, and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time in this interview talking about whether raising testosterone is even something that's relevant to you to improve your dating, sex, and relationships life, or maybe your life in general. The guy we got on the show today to talk about testosterone is Christopher Walker. Christopher Walker is special for two reasons. The first is that he's had to work from a very extreme low testosterone situation himself, where he basically had hardly any testosterone due to medical reasons and raised them all the way up to above normal levels, where he's getting all the benefits of of testosterone as an optimally healthy guy. The second reason is that his interest and his studies have been in neuroscience. So he's looked at some of the aspects of how testosterone affects our brains. And that's interesting because it relates back to confidence in a game, intent, drive, and all these aspects that we're more interested in from our perspective, looking at dating, sex, and relationships. Whereas if you look online, a lot of the people are talking about testosterone. They're interested in that for muscle reasons, right? Bodybuilding mostly. So it's great to have Christopher Walker on the show. As usual, to get the transcript, the show notes, and all of that stuff, you go to datingskillsreview.com slash DSP52, DSP52. Now let's get to this interview. So Christopher Walker, does this name get you into a bit of trouble? Oh, with, with the Christopher Walken thing? Yeah, because I tried to Google you. And it's oh, yeah. it's not easy. You gotta wade through pages and use lots of keywords and stuff. Well he's given me a life goal to go after, to to beat him in Google. <laughs> you got it cut out for you because he's been around <laughs> for a while, hasn't he? He's like built up a whole stack of internet pages. Oh yeah. Well it gets me a lot of hits on stuff people find. Oh yeah. If you do Google search for me, you'll see shirtless pics and stuff. So or if you search for like Christopher Walken, I think it still shows up. Christopher Walker model. Mm-hmm. Some of the Google image searches just will show some six pack ab shots or something and, and ends up getting, I get a decent amount of search traffic from Christopher Walken. So having to thank. That's, pretty- <laughs> that's <laughs> but- great. Cause I know I, I was always, if I'm, if I'm going to launch a new service or anything, pick a podcast name or whatever, I'm always like, oh, is there anything out there already it can confuse things and everything, but it's good to hear it's working out for you positively. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And plus I like him as an and, and just being in LA and Hollywood, like everyone I meet, they're like, oh, what's your name? It's like, oh, Christopher Walker. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's a great name. <laughs> <laughs> Some yeah. people even put two and two together and they're just like, that's a you know strong name. <laughs> I'm like, all right, whatever. It's a good thing. So what is your background? How did you get into all of this testosterone stuff? Was it by accident or what happened? Kind of. It was, I guess, a bit serendipitous, but it was also very deliberate. So if that makes sense, both 
things could happen at once. So essentially, I my sophomore year of college, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor in my pituitary gland. One of the biggest things it was doing was blocking my testosterone. It was kind of like having a, uh, for a visual, it was like having a rock in a funnel. Mm. You know, just sitting there blocking. Because the pituitary gland, for people who don't know, it's, it sits right at the seat of your brain where it kind of essentially manipulates the endocrine system. And it, it really controls the endocrine system. And that's the system that controls the hormones in your body. So your pituitary gland is what communicates with your endocrine system to kind of tell it what to do. Hmm. So I had this tumor that was blocking the secretion of actually quite a few hormones. But as a 19-year-old male, all I cared about was testosterone because I was like, oh my gosh, my testosterone is basically zero. And I'm really feeling the effects. You know, I, I felt depressed. I had anxiety. Hmm. I, I was rapidly fluctuating in my body fat and my weight. Mm -hmm. Really, I had to have these weird swings. At one point, I was super skinny. At one point, I had like 30% body fat. So it was really kind of a crazy period of my life. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I was in college and I was pre-med at that point. And when I got diagnosed, I was like, all right, I'm going to be a neuroscience major. So I used my degree in neuroscience to figure out how to change my, my problem naturally. And that was something I was really vehement for. It was basically using natural means to increase right. my testosterone and to get over this brain tumor issue because the tumor itself was not cancerous or is not. I mean, I still have it actually. So it's, you're saying it's not malignant, right? It's just a benign yeah. tumor. Yeah, because yeah. when, when you say tumor, I think everyone's like, oh my God, when's he going to die? But if it's yeah. benign, then you can have it for life, right? It's not a problem. Yeah, and the issue is with this specific type of tumor, it can be a hit or miss, and that can also fluctuate. So we kind of have to monitor it every six months or so. I get an MRI to make sure it's not growing. Mm. But I was kind of faced with the choice of either getting it removed immediately or just doing what I'm doing right now and monitoring it and then going on some kind of a hormone therapy. So I chose to not get the surgery because I actually had a friend in college who had the same tumor. Oh, wow. And it was actually pressing on her or optic nerve or something. It, basically, it was messing with her eyesight, mm. which is another common thing with pituitary tumors. And so there's some risk there with your eyesight. It can give you like really bad headaches. Right. Uh, but she got it removed and there was a bit of an issue. And she, she was a little bit different afterward, a lot more anxious and, you know, just slightly off. So I, I was a bit scared about the tumor getting it removed. So I, I just thought, okay, there's no, I'm going to play the odds here and just mm. try to this out on my own i'm i'm a capable guy i can figure this out yeah it's a great attitude man i think it seems like this is more common you've known a girl who has this and one of my ex-girlfriends had this uh, right next to the pituitary gland also and she used to get headaches and so i don't know if it's pretty common but that's yeah you know. I, I think they are pretty common actually you know i have i have this theory that a lot of issues that people have that they think are psychological mm. are actually really biologically based i, I think totally agree with you there 100%. Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah, we were talking about this earlier before we started recording how people really need to start addressing their biology a lot more because mm. really a lot of behavioral things are rooted in biology. Yep. So I would, I would say essentially with the fact that we know pituitary tumors are actually pretty common, they have a wide range of effects on people mm. because they can all be slightly different. They can manipulate certain hormones differently, but yep. a lot of our behavior is based in our hormones. Mm -hmm. And if people are experiencing really strange issues, things that kind of come out of the blue. Yep. You know, over the course of a couple of years, some people's personalities might change a ton. Right. If you're around someone like that, they may have some kind of an issue, a benign tumor in their brain. Mm -hmm. 
that's causing some kind of hormonal imbalance. So it's actually a worthwhile thing to go get an MRI and just to get it checked out or maybe run even just a hormone panel uh, to see if the doctor notices anything. You know. Right, right, right. Totally. Yeah, I, I came into contact with this because I didn't really think that much about it before. I thought about it a bit in the coaching and stuff. I kind of noticed that guys had different anxiety levels. The psychology stuff doesn't seem to always work for them. So I was thinking more about biology. But then about two or three years ago, I was rushed to hospital thinking I had a stroke. And it turned out what I had was some brain inflammation. Just before that, for the three months before, I had super crazy anxiety that I'd never had in my life, right? I kind of thought I was going crazy or something because it was just like I had to control my mind all the time. So, you know, I can totally relate. It was a biological thing that was fixed afterwards. It was just like lowering the inflammation and finding out what the cause was. It was all biological. It had nothing to do with psychology. So if anyone's out there and they're basically thinking, hmm, I'm kind of feeling emotionally different these days compared to a little while ago, it could very well just be some kind of biological issue, whether it's a tumor or something else. Yeah, I, I actually I completely agree. I, I would urge people to get a regular checkup, a regular blood test mm. with just some basic hormone panels, especially for guys. Like, Get certain things checked. Get your free and your total testosterone checked, your cortisol levels, prolactin, right. those kind of things. Just make sure they're all in balance because if they're not, there's something wrong. It's not a, a natural state to be in if you have something like low testosterone or really high cortisol. So just keep an eye on it. It's like the philosophy of gathering data. Right. You know how to move forward better if you actually have the data. Yeah, you always need the data. As with these biological things, it's you can't just start any treatment or anything if you haven't got some kind of data to prove it. Otherwise, you go around in circles. Yeah, uh, that's like the WebMD thing where people go online. Oh, yeah. <laughs> symptoms and it's like, oh my gosh, I either have a headache or cancer. It's always cancer. Like every time you search something, it's cancer. It's scary. Yeah, but it's funny because like people we try and use that to move forward with some kind of a treatment, but they don't have any data, they don't have any blood markers or anything. So yeah. go get a blood test, go get an MRI right. or something right. if you really think you have an issue. And um, it's good that you mentioned the MRI because the CT scan is not what you want. Some doctors will recommend a CT scan, but that can actually hurt you. <laughs> it's putting radiation in your brain. So it's, uh, get an MRI if you're going to get something, not a CT scan. They're used for different things, you know, they're, yeah. but some people will just kind of blanket recommend certain stuff because... You know, also another thing, you got to be careful and not get too many of these things. Like you said, there's a lot of radiation involved with a lot of testing and yeah. and it's also expensive. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to avoid it. So anyway, your testosterone levels were pretty damn low. What kind of, what were they exactly? Basically, the lowest I had measured at the time of actually being diagnosed with the tumor was 11 nanograms per deciliter. Which is insane. I didn't even know that was possible. Like I didn't yeah. know you could walk around with 11 nanograms. It was basically, yeah, like zero. That's really what it is. So for reference with people, the average range for most guys is like 400 to 1,000. Right. So having 11 basically means you have nothing. (laughs) Wow. Wow. All right, well, we'll get more into those reference ranges in a bit. I just want to get a bit more background on you. So how old are you now? Where do you live? What's your life like? Well, I am 24 years old. I live in Hollywood. And my life is outstanding, actually. I have a great apartment, some great friends here in the entertainment industry, especially. I work on the internet. Yep. Uh, I blog and have a show called The Road to Rip Podcast, creating courses, teaching people things, mm-hmm. uh, specifically with neuroscience-related things, because that's really what I, my background's in, and I really enjoy it. Mm. Nootropics, how to increase your testosterone. I'm also going to start teaching people about building an online business, because I really believe, actually, a lot in this lifestyle. And I know you're a digital nomad, too. It's kind of a freeing thing where you work online and you can live wherever you want and it gives you the freedom to really work on things that you believe in and i think we need more people doing this because 
it really gives people the opportunity to pursue their art, which is really what they're here to do, you know. It allows them to contribute to the world. You could think like a lot of people like, I don't want to say stuck, but they're in these, these jobs where a company's controlling their output to the world, what they create. And sometimes it's good. If you find the right place, you're putting something out there to the world that's helping it and stuff. But, you know, in some other corporation, maybe it's not good. And you could probably feel that inside. So I think a lot of people get fed up with that, but they don't know what to do about it. And as you said, this is a great way to kind of contribute, put something out there into the world that's going to make it better. And it makes you feel better because of that, too. Exactly. There hasn't been a better time in history to do it. You know, you you can work for yourself. It's not the hardest thing. Within six months, I had a full-time business running. Uh, So it doesn't take that long, especially if you're already in a job and you have some money saved up. Right. You know, you'll be fine. I think if you do it intelligently, people can really not take much time and just work really hard at it and have a full-time business for themselves. Right. And I think the main thing is take something you're passionate in because you're going to have way more energy to contribute towards it. You don't want to get bored. <laughs> right, exactly. Like you say, it takes maybe six months or so to, to get it running. So you do need to get have a bit of energy. If you've got a bit passionate about whatever you, you want to do, then that's what's going to get you through that first six months. All right, man. So in terms of dating and relationships, what is your lifestyle like today? Do you have a particular philosophy or anything like that? Dating and relationship. It's interesting you ask that, actually. I'm at a turning point, I think, in my life where I've done the casual thing up until this point and starting to become hollow. Right, I, right. I really am looking for something pretty significant in my life, but those are things you can't really force. So I'm kind of just open to it. I'm, I hate to say settling down because I'm not settling down. I'm not, no, I won't settle down until much later, but I'm settling down in terms of going out all the time, yeah. drinking a lot and that sort of thing. So I, I just kind of, I'm trying to focus on my businesses and mm. meeting women just out during the day. I'd kind of tired of going out at night. So I'm starting to appreciate sleep more. <laughs> so I, I think maybe this is, means I'm becoming an adult. I'm about to turn 25. So It sounds you know. like you're becoming responsible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just even in this shift, I've met a lot of great women recently just out and about, you know, out of the pool or out of the grocery store. And right, right. It also helps you when you make that shift of becoming more responsible in your daily life. At least with me, I've, it's, I feel like it's empowered me a lot in terms of the way I think about myself. And that kind of radiates out into other people. You like other people notice that. Do you mean your business or the way you're changing your approach to kind of dating and relationships? Both. Right. I, I think it all kind of works synergistically. As I become more confident in what I do online and then my businesses, it also builds into my life more too. Where you know that confidence kind of rubs off on other people. You know, I'm happier. Totally. It becomes easy to meet people too. You kind of attract people. There's like a magnetic thing going on. Yeah. Well, I think some of it is you're doing stuff in life, you're putting stuff out there and that attracts more people because you're just doing more stuff, right? So it kind of makes sense. You're doing more stuff, you're, you're putting more out into the world and you're meeting people through that. You know, you're probably meeting a lot more people because your business and what you're doing right now and they got a lot more in common with you as well. And I think that works well, as well as the positive kind of vibe you've got because you're just happier in what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Well put. (laughs) Great there. Well, it's great to hear. I was just interested. You said you've kind of got to this point where you're over the casual thing. Is there anything you noticed about that? Did some things happen which got you to that kind of critical mass? Are there any particular changes in your life? Maybe you dated 10 girls. I don't know. Is there anything you can think of that kind of got you to that point? I think it was just, you know, an accumulation of just years of being casual about relationships to the point of, I would never try and actually hurt anybody. You know, feelings get hurt. I'm just a bit tired of that. And Mm. I started to notice that it wasn't adding anything to my life and it was only 
taking time away from myself, from things that I really wanted to focus on. And Mm -hmm. when you're in a situation where you're not all in, especially if the other person and you don't have the same expectations, if they're not in line, Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a very draining thing for both individuals. Right. Mm. It's been enough of that. And I think I just want to move on and try and develop more meaningful relationships. Right, right. Well, actually, everything you've said is very, very common. Guys will get into studying this area of their lives. They'll see more women and so on. And all of the things you just mentioned come up after a while. And uh, eventually, they typically start realizing they're unhappy. And, you know, this isn't adding to their life. And it's more of a distraction. Once you kind of get to that stuff, I found that guys will get much happier when they make a decision like you, where, you know, they're going to focus on relationships where you're going to give them back and they're going to be able to give back also. Because I think some some guys will get out there, they can see that maybe they're hurting girls because they've got different expectations and stuff and pretend it doesn't affect them. But I think it affects all of us because none yeah. of us kind of want more negative emotions in our lives. If you've got those different expectations going on, then at, at some point it's getting through to you and maybe on a subconscious level and it's not making you happy about what you're up to, right? I agree. Yeah. I think at the root, most of us are good people. We don't want to hurt other people. So even if both parties are kind of trying to hide their emotions, they still get through. I totally agree. It's just kind of at a certain point, most of us are looking for something more significant than that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and the thing I found is just through the business and stuff, because we've created businesses which kind of map our interests in life. I meet a lot of interesting girls as well, just through, like I said, doing what I'm doing, right? Because it's, it's linked to my passions and everything. So all my work and a lot of my time, because whatever you're going to work on is going to take a lot of time. You just happen to meet more people which are interesting for you. So that's been a good angle as well of this kind of invest in your lifestyle passions kind of brings more relevant people into your life naturally. Well, I agree. It's like most people that you meet, girls and guys, when you're meeting people and developing relationships, you're a really interesting person if you're the guy who's like going after what they want mm. all the time. And that is it doesn't even matter what it is. It's like you could want to make an ice cream stand, make the best ice cream stand in the world, but that just comes off as really cool to basically everyone if they can tell that you're really into it. So when you tell people like, oh, I wrote a book or, oh, I teach people through courses or I have a show in iTunes, and they're just like, oh, that is the coolest thing because they can tell you love doing what you're doing. So it just kind of like radiates out of you that you're really passionate about what you're doing. And it doesn't even matter at a certain point. Like most girls, they don't even care like what it is. They're just like, oh, this guy is, he's going after what he wants. He's ambitious, confident, happy with what he's doing. So it's beneficial to focus on those kind of things, I think, for a lot of guys. Right. Uh, aside from just, oh, I got to go chase girls all the time. Mm. It's, it's really beneficial to pour yourself into something because then it becomes magnetic. You become an easier person to talk to. You're more interesting. You're more passionate about a lot of things. Because you learn everything, you know, you're witty. (laughs) It kind of like develops, I don't know, entrepreneurship, I feel so strongly in it uh, as a personal development tool. It's because you're constantly having to do new things and push out there. And the more you do, the more confident you get in life. It's just like more action brings you more and more confidence over time because you know you can deal with anything. Entrepreneurship, it's like this up and down every day or every week. It's going up and down all the time. Like good results, bad results. You know, in the first year, it's rocky. And it affects your emotions and everything. But over time, you get more and more resistant to that naturally. And you realize, yeah, it's just a process. I'm just going to have to push through this and learn how to problem solve, basically. So as you say, it's like an incredibly healthy and it teaches you a lot about yourself. And it kind of takes that victim mentality that a lot of people have. Mm. It just pulls it out of you. And it's like, there's no time for this. You can't be a victim and be a successful entrepreneur. You know, you can't complain about things that have happened to you. 
or worry about things that might happen. Just kind of have to roll with the punches and be very self-empowered. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because if you are working for another company, you're not fully responsible for your wealth, that angle. Whereas when you become an entrepreneur, you have to become responsible. It's you now. You can't just say, I'm receiving a paycheck. It's going to come in every month. And then it's like company's fault or it's a CEO's fault or whatever. It is all your fault. So that's a very good point you made there. That translates directly into personal relationships too, because it helps you really take charge of the problem solving in your relationships. Just being that person who's always going to be like taking charge of things and taking responsibility for their actions as opposed to someone who's like the same guy who complains about getting fired because of negligence or something is the same guy who's like blaming his relationship problems on a bunch of other people. I think it rubs off and kind of works everywhere in your life at once. Totally agree. Responsibility is the key word there. Just take responsibility for yourself. This is a good conversation, man. Didn't, didn't expect to talk about this. <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, but let's move into the testosterone because that's what we're here to talk about. So you've looked a fair amount at the research on testosterone. What would you say are the biggest myths surrounding its importance? You know, obviously it's built up a lot online, right? I mean, there's all sorts of ads on porn sites and all that kind of stuff about testosterone and, and ways to boost it and stuff. So the marketing can kind of distract us from whether this is actually an important thing or not. So what would you say are the biggest myths surrounding it? Great question. So I'd say first thing that most guys will assume is that more is better. Hmm. So something to understand for people is when you get into like the middle of the normal range, so let's say just to put numbers on it, some like around 600 to 800 right, right. nanograms per deciliters. Mm-hmm. When you're around in that range, you're not going to see massive differences. Basically, let's say you had low testosterone. Let's say you were at like 200 and then you brought it up to 700. You're going to see massive changes in a lot of things like your well-being, your ability to hold and retain muscle mass and gain muscle mass. Your libido is going to be completely different in a good way. Hmm. Those sort of things. You, you won't be depressed. Your anxiety will be a lot lower. But then when you jump from something like 700 to like 1,000, you're not going to see those same massive differences. It might be like slight enhancements, but they're not going to be huge. So right. a lot of people, I think, they envision this place of, oh my gosh, I, I need to have like really, really high testosterone. And hmm. then I'm going to like just put on slabs of muscle and be super, super lean all the time and shredded and just have like libido of, you know, some animal in mating season, like a gorilla in mating season. That's not really a realistic expectation, I think. Mm -hmm. I think really what it it depends a lot on your personality too. People who are more relaxed are going to stay more relaxed. You're just going to feel a lot better. You're going to have a great libido. Everything's just going to come into a a synergy when you're in that normal, healthy range. And uh, you're not going to see this massive improvement. Like, oh, I just, all I have to do is go do curls and I'm just put on slabs of muscle. That's really what happens when people are taking to the extreme and supplementing with shots and that sort of thing and trying to get their testosterone way up two, three, four times the normal amount. That is when you have like these really unrealistic things. But you're, what you're doing is you're really just screwing up your endocrine system because you're giving it an unnatural amount of these hormones. And that's where things like steroids and that sort of stuff just really screws you up. Right. I actually know a few people who are taking steroids started recently well it seems to be coming more of a trend like more acceptable and the way my buddy sold it to me is just like 
yeah, everyone's doing it, right? He's looking at bodybuilding forums and so on, and everyone's doing it, and it's way easier. And some of the things he sold, you know, he's tried to, tried to kind of sell it to me afterwards. Well, you could take tons of supplements, and you realize how much you've been spending on supplements, and then you get these cheap steroids, and you take them for a couple of weeks, and it makes all the difference, right? So what would you say to those kind of arguments? Why should you go a natural way if you're going to mess around with this stuff versus taking those steroids? Steroids are going to basically ravage your hormones over the long term. So mm. essentially, if you're giving your body an unnatural amount of anything, mm. you're going to have this compensatory response. Mm. So the natural state that your body wants to be in, there's like an innate intelligence essentially in the way your body operates. It wants to be in a state of balance. Mm-hmm. So anytime, and we're talking like biologically and psychologically, anytime you're introducing an extreme to the body, i.e., you know, injecting steroids and having extremely high levels of certain hormones or going on an extreme crash diet. What usually happens, basically all the time, depending on how much willpower you have, you can like stave it off for maybe a year or two or if you're really good and become very miserable. But what usually will happen is your body's going to kind of override your willpower and swing you back in the opposite direction. Mm. If you're looking at like dieting, for example, that turns into binge eating. And then people just yo-yo back and forth. If you're looking at steroids, what's going to happen is you are introducing such high levels of steroid hormones that what people who take steroids usually don't understand is that the endocrine system operates on feedback loops, both positive and negative feedback loops. So when it's running normally, there's a reason that you can't get much higher than like say 12 or 1300 testosterone Mm -hmm. um, naturally because your body running on these feedback loops. So when you get to a certain level that's unnaturally high, well, you'll never get there naturally, but if you're reaching that threshold, your body with these feedback loops is kind of telling itself through regulation of other hormones that, okay, we're high enough. You know, this is enough. We don't need anymore. It starts getting higher. uh, You are going to start having issues with your other hormones because they're all interconnected. So what happens when people go very, very high is they're basically just saying F you to the body's natural feedback system that regulates all these processes and just overriding it. So they're going to have a compensatory response, which usually ends up being for a lot of guys become impotent and they have shrinkage issues, (laughs) basically things that I personally do not want. And I I don't want my clients to have or my customers ever to have. So so to be clear, you're talking about like testicle shrinkage or... Yeah, testicle shrinkage. What about infertility or anything like that? Is there anything? That's definitely a possibility. Mm. It's almost a guarantee, I think, just depending on how long you're on the steroids. Right. I think most people just, they'll go on it and they'll just go on it and stay on it uh, for years. There's, there's some gray area too when you look at people with jobs that require, like actors who are trying to get big for roles and stuff. They all take steroids, but they cycle on them and then they go right off after the movie. Right, uh, like Captain America style? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he, he got big pretty quick. And they don't overdo it either. Mm. A lot of guys too will just take steroids for years and just keep pumping and they get unnaturally big. And it's funny because if you're taking steroids to look better to the opposite sex, Mm. I, I really I would caution you against it because like every girl I've ever talked to just thinks guys who are on steroids look ridiculous. That's the thing. It's this whole bigger, better attitude. You know, you're talking about there's a sweet spot for testosterone hormones. There's also a sweet spot for muscle mass. You know, it's yeah. not just like more better. And there's a sweet spot for penis size and all these things that guys worry about. Right. There's a sweet spot. It's not like more is better all the time. And I think one of the things I've noticed over time is also Once you start to do something, right? So say you start on 
the steroids and you get a bit bigger. Because of the way kind of our brains work, the grass is always kind of greener. Then next you're looking at other guys who are bigger and you're like, I got to be as big as that, right? And then when you get there, you're like, oh, I got to be bigger, right? And it's kind of, you get on this kind of roller coaster, which you see in plastic surgery as well, right? People will do a few plastic surgery tips and tucks here. Like I saw it a lot in Thailand and places like that. And of course in LA, they do it a lot. And you see them kind of get on this roller coaster after a while. And in a little while later, they don't really look good at all. The stuff they're doing is really extreme, but they don't realize it because they're kind of on this roller coaster of the first step plus the second step. And they got to somewhere where they didn't think they would end up, right? I don't know if you've seen that too. That's a good point. Oh, no, totally. Because then you can tell you're like, oh, that woman does a lot of plastic surgery. And it's like, she's not even attractive. It's just like, oh my gosh, she clearly just has done a ton of plastic surgery. Right, right. right. And Um, you see that a lot in LA. I mean, just walking around or like in the bars, you see that quite often. And it's just like, wow, it's too much. Everywhere. Yeah, that's why I caution people what I teach them. I always harp on people realizing their why like why you're doing something and keeping that at the top of their mind at all times. Because when you always have the reason why you're going after some kind of a goal on the top of your mind, then you don't get distracted by those kind of things. Because if someone, for example, doing plastic surgery, their why initially was to look more attractive, but eventually it turns into they just look like they have plastic surgery. Same with steroids. A lot of guys, their why is like, I'm skinny and I want to get bigger and just have good amount of muscle mass. Like you said, they get to a certain point where maybe they even look great then they start comparing themselves to other people and they get caught up in that. And that's not their initial why. They're just trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And they end up looking like a cloud. It's a bunch of bulging muscles. Yeah. Well, I'd actually say like my buddy who's doing this, he's like, he looks great as he is. But he's now talking about his first ever cycle, which was apparently a very low cycle. And now he's looking at the next step. But, you know, if I was him, I would just stop where he is right now because I don't see how getting bigger is going to be a positive at all. It's interesting to see that. So in terms of talking about this feedback mechanism, which keeps us within norms, if it's done naturally. So it's, this goes a lot with the health crowd as well, right? A lot of people these days are saying, we don't really understand our biology and things like this. So you try and do things which are kind of natural, and then you're going to stay within the natural realm of biology and you're not going to mess yourself up. A lot of people talk about U-curves, which I don't really understand. It's kind of like this sweet spot at the bottom but I always think of it as an end curve. Like in, in testosterone, we start off low, right? And we, we get low rewards maybe because we're at like 200 or something like that. And so we're kind of deficient, basically. Then we increase it and we kind of get more rewards at the top of the end curve. And then we, we start pushing it forever. Maybe we have some negatives. Yeah, I'd say I still think, though, with, within the normal range, mm-hmm. probably like up to 1,200 or so, maybe a little higher, which is actually hard to do, really hard to do, get higher than that. Within that range, though, between like 450, maybe 500 in there, you're not going to see many negatives at all. Mm. And it might just depend on the personality. Though I found personally, like I've had it at 1200 for a while, like right, right below. So it's usually like between 1000 and 1200, just because I kind of know what to do. Like, mm. right, I don't feel like completely that much different than I did at 800 or so. Right. Uh, and there's not really, it's just like my personality. I'm a pretty relaxed guy. I'm just pretty chill. I have some systems in place psychologically to like not get anxious about certain things and whatever. Mm. But for some people, maybe they'll get a little more aggressive. I don't know that it just seems like it's a personality construct in terms of people kind of roid raging out. But usually that only happens when people are at like unnaturally high levels. Mm. So you don't think that would happen at 1,200? Not really. No. Okay, cool. If the person is like naturally prone to being aggressive, 
then maybe it would come out a little bit more. Right. For example, someone who maybe is like when they get drunk, they get really aggressive. Mm. Those kind of people, maybe if they're at the very, very high end, they might be a little more aggressive than usual, but probably not. It definitely gives you kind of more drive and control over your life. So I guess if, you, if you're thinking about it like psychologically, then if you've kind of got repressed anger and you have more testosterone, you're more free to push it out there when you have a normal or high testosterone level. Would you say that makes sense? Possibly. I think maybe what's the better personification of like a high testosterone level is that yep. you feel like a man. In that feeling, you are very confident. You're, you're mm-hmm. confident in what you, what you have to bring to the table. Yep. Uh, and you're secure in that confidence. Mm-hmm. You're more secure than if you're at 300, 400, and you're because you're worrying about that kind of issue. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you feel very strongly about something, you'll feel more secure in asserting your point. Right. Not necessarily being like overtly aggressive. Mm-hmm. So is there anything we haven't discussed, which say at a, a level of 1,200 or 1,300, any, are there any negative aspects to having that kind of level of testosterone? Not that I've personally run across mm-hmm. either in my own life or in the literature, to be honest. There's uh, Depending on what you think, though, you know, like maybe that would send someone's libido into overdrive and that could be a negative, <laughs> believe it or not. Right, you know, right. It could be very distracting to try and get work done and that sort of thing, so... Right. So that's actually something I wanted to bring up, which is a bit more of a tangent. But uh, if you look at a lot of studies on different ethnicities, you see that there are different levels of promiscuity or, you know, sexual activity, STD rates and, you know, all sorts of implications over their life. And they also even try to tie it down to productivity and and things like that. There's a fair number of uh, studies out there. Like they have seen differences between different ethnicities. And obviously there are different levels of testosterone, natural ranges of testosterone between these ethnicities. So would you, would you say to that level of degree, it can be influencing behavior, right? So obviously, you know, they often point at ethnic Africans, which have the higher levels of testosterone, for instance, and the Asians have the lowest, if you kind of want to take different kind of extremes and, and different behaviors based on that. Is, is that something you would say is possible based on different levels of testosterone. Do you think it's related to something more complicated about those ethnicities or is it just the testosterone, for example? Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen those studies. i just go check those out. But yeah. I, think, I think it's probably a good mix of everything. Common sense wise, it, it makes a lot of sense that if you do have a much higher level of testosterone, regardless of ethnicity, like if your testosterone is higher mm-hmm. and that ends up leading you to have a higher libido and you'll probably be less productive in general because you're always just thinking about sex all the time. Right, right. So that's just common sense. But yeah, yeah I haven't actually looked at the studies. I'd be interested to look at them. So when you boost with steroids, would you get this kind of, let's say, over-enhanced libido as well? Would that happen? I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised either way, though, actually, yeah. if it was really suppressed. The endocrine system is an extremely complicated thing. Right, right, totally. Uh, this, this kind of connects back to the dating philosophy you have as well in your overall lifestyle. It's not an issue that guys typically normally think about when they're first listening to dating advice and so on. But eventually you get to this point where it, your satisfaction is the most important thing and your happiness in life. And then you can start looking at, is my dating life too distracting for me? Is it taking away from other aspects of my life? And so on. So that's when you might start entertaining these kind of higher level questions is like, could my testosterone be a little bit too high and my libido as a consequence be a little bit too high and becoming a distracting factor rather than a positive in my life. But for most people, this is probably not going to be the issue, right? Yeah. For most people, they're just, you know, usually struggling with low testosterone. A lot of guys. Well, can we talk a little bit about that? Because some of the research says it can be age related, right? As you get older, 
people get lower testosterone and also understand that there's a trend towards lower testosterone across kind of society as well, which they're not entirely sure exactly why it's happening. Could you comment on those? Sure. Yeah. So on the age, that's common sense too. It kind of really makes sense of having an age decline. Same if you look at women, there's definitely a fertility decline, obviously, yep. to at a certain age. And for men, I think really though can last a lot longer in terms of their testosterone levels than they do. A lot of guys, by the time they get to their mid-30s, a lot of guys are like at ridiculously low levels of testosterone, which and I'll talk about in a minute. I'll talk about why. Yeah. But it's not natural. Even when you're in your 40s and your 50s, I think men can still maintain their healthy levels of testosterone. Will it be naturally lower? Will you be able to maintain like a 1,000 when you're mm-hmm. 50? It'll probably be difficult to do that naturally. And that's just realistic because your body is not operating in the same way as it, as it was when you're young. If you look at it evolutionarily, you're young, you're looking to mate, your sex drive is like through the ceiling. Mm. Uh, it's going to be naturally different than when you're 50 years old and you've been through your life and you've, you've lived and possibly been married, had kids and that sort of thing. You'll be a different person at that point. You can still have a healthy, normal level of testosterone. If you have low testosterone at that point and it's like very low, that's not natural. Right, and you're right. doing some things wrong. So, so is the cutoff point you mentioned earlier, is it 600? For the normal range? Right. Like below this number, you would say it's on the low side and you should do something to get it raised. Well, the, the real ranges actually just depend on whatever lab you're using for the testing. Right. Uh, that's something you should probably bring up too. Yeah. Yeah. So like the main labs here in the US, at least they're usually measuring it between 400 and up. Right. So that's kind of the thing. But I've seen people measure it a little bit higher and a little bit lower. Just it depends on the labs. But I'd say in general, like what you want to aim for, yeah, is probably around 600, the upper 500s for the low end. So anything below that, anything in the low 500s or the 400s and, and below that, yep. in my book is low. Well, I had my own personal experiences, like I did an experiment on this a couple of years ago. I had in the 400s and I put it up to 680 over a couple of months and I felt way better. I was doing better in the gym and everything. I really felt the difference between that. So 430 or something when I started and, you know, I was around 35, 30, 36 at the time. So I guess for my age, that might be a normal. It's not like my lifestyle was different. So I guess like a lot of my friends could be tested and they're around the same, around like 400s or something. So we all basically had these relatively low compared to the markers you're talking about levels. And we saw a difference when we took some measures to, to get it fixed. Yeah, exactly. It's funny, like I was saying earlier, just that initial jump from the three or 400 range mm. up to the 600 range yeah. to 800, you're going to see very massive and noticeable improvements. Yeah. So, and, and on the reference thing you said, I got mine first tested when I was in Bangkok, I think, and the range they were using was something like 400 to 780 or I can't something like that, right? So I was in the range when I got tested. And I didn't know about the different reference ranges. So what you're talking more about when you say the, the 600 to 1,100, you're talking about more of an optimum range because labs, they're just taking a range on the normal curve of society, right? But if, yeah. if, as we say, like more and more people have got lower testosterone, then those ranges are just kind of going down over time, whereas the optimum should still stay the same, right? Exactly. Yeah. I think really what they're measuring for each lab is they gather all the data because mm-hmm. that's what they do. They gather numbers. They have all the data on all the tests they've ever run. Yep. So I think that's how they calibrate their normal ranges. And that's how we get data, like you mentioned, where they say, okay, there's been a, a steady downward trend in terms of males, mm. testosterone numbers. I actually think, just to comment on that, I wholeheartedly believe that it has to do with nutrition. 
uh, just across you know society. If you look at the downward trend with testosterone numbers and then the upward trend with obesity, even around the world, it makes perfect sense. Because when you have higher body fat levels, you are naturally going to have lower testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. And there will definitely be like some people that are just complete anomalies who are normally in like and they have been for their entire lives in like the 20% range of body fat around there mm. and still have like very high testosterone or healthy normal levels. But for most people, when they're in a uh, higher range of body fat, they're going to suffer issues lower testosterone. And basically the, the biggest thing that I tell people to do right away to increase their testosterone is to decrease their body fat levels. If you do it intelligently with good nutrition, you're actually doing a lot of things at once in terms of bringing your testosterone back up. Because essentially when you have all this this body fat, toxic body fat, it's operating as an organ. There are a lot of like bad hormones in your body fat. So when you're able to get rid of it, you're literally lifting a load off your body that now it feels a lot better. Another myth I think that people kind of prescribe to is that lower body fat equals better. And this is, again, like we're going back to that more is better style thing. To a certain point, when you get to a healthy body fat level, that's where you want to stay, I think. When people get really, really low, like I'm talking like below 8% body fat, where they're just shredded, that's when you actually start running again into low testosterone issues. So your body really wants to strike a balance again. You know, I know a lot of fitness models who who have to take testosterone shots, you know, and people think of these guys as like the epitome of manly. Mm -hmm. They're just tons of lean muscle tissue, they're shredded to the bone, they're just jacked. It's funny because they they all have really low levels of testosterone, like 200, 300. So they have to take shots to keep their testosterone high enough so that they can keep training. Wow, wow. So what is a good range for body fat? If you can get to very, very low end, if you get to 8 or 9% over a long period of time yeah. of healthy training with a small calorie deficit over like a couple years. Yep. I think that people can maintain that with high testosterone. Mm-hmm. And I've done that myself. Like I stay right around 9% body fat mm. and keep my testosterone high. But And then at the higher end, I'd say maybe like 15%. Mm-hmm. So within within that range of maybe like 9 to 15, 14 to 15% uh, body fat is usually where you're going to have your highest levels of testosterone and you're going to feel great too. I mean, you're going to feel more athletic. You'll feel light on your feet. You'll feel healthy. And that's kind of a general place where a lot of people just fluctuate at a healthy level without right. paying much attention to like their diet and stuff. As long as they're eating pretty well and getting some exercise, they'll usually stay in that range. Right. If you're thinking like 2080, it's pretty easy to get a 13%, say. But to do that extra 4 or 5% that you were just talking about, you know, it takes a bit more effort. Yeah, and that's why I, I tell people to do it over a longer period of time mm. uh, and not be in such a rush. Because, yeah, it, it's not that hard to get down to like a 13% body fat, 12%. You just need to drop body fat and by having a calorie deficit and training correctly. But when you get to a certain point, like that calorie deficit becomes much harder to maintain. Yeah. Especially if it was big in the first place. Because for people who are overweight or obese, it's it's a lot easier to actually have a bigger cal- calorie deficit because you have more energy to feed off of. Mm-hmm. But when you start reaching that point where you're going into kind of pushing the boundaries of that healthy body fat level and trying to get really lean so you have like a great beach body, your body's going to fight back. <laughs> right. and, and that's through those feedback systems. You have like these appetite regulating hormones and th- those sort of things that are going to kind of fight back and make you want to self-sabotage. That's just the natural thing though. 
So that's why I recommend doing it over time. Like when you're at a healthy body fat level, if you want to get ripped, to not go over like a 20% deficit at mm-hmm. a time, because that's really like a sweet spot. It's nice and easy. Your body's not going to notice any big hormonal swings that would come from like dieting on a huge deficit. And that's that's why people advocate things like refeeds, because they advocate it like in a diet that is on a big deficit. So let's say, oh, go all week with like really low carbs or really low uh, fat and a really high protein diet on like 1600 calories a day. Mm. Then on Sunday, you do a refeed where you can kind of eat anything you want to, you know, upregulate all the right hormones and reset your hormones for the next week. I tend to think diets like that just kind of miss the point. It's like you can have a much smaller deficit all week and then you don't risk all the binge eating on that one day to just completely overrides everything you just did over the week. And you can, you don't have to crush your hormones every time and make them have these wild swings back and forth. You can just have a smaller deficit where you're, you're kind of hitting that sweet spot and grooving it over a period of like six months or 12 months and really just keep your testosterone at a nice, healthy level right. the entire time. You can train harder. You sleep better. You have less anxiety. You don't feel depressed. You don't crave a bunch of food. So that's kind of the approach that I advocate. Right. That's actually what I do too. And I just picked up on it's the mental stability issue as well. Like you say, because I, I did once a week crazy refeed thing for about four months or so. I would get headaches at the end of that day every time. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what was doing it, but it was really messing with my biology and it wasn't fun. And also I'd noticed that when I tried to work those days, it was much harder as well. Oh. I couldn't get stuff done and I was all over the place. I was like more ADD and things like that. So there's something to that stability point you just mentioned. Like on those refeed days, I've been on diets like that before. And, and I know that feeling where you just eat and then you just want to fall asleep. You, you literally can't think. You have this brain fog and you're just like, oh my gosh. Not to mention your GI tract. You just go all week barely eating anything and then you just shove a bunch of food down your face. Your stomach is like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not good. And it's also like way easier, I think, to get an, a habit that you're just following every day. After a while, it becomes automatic, right? It's just the right thing to do and you do it all the time and you don't even think about it after a while. You know, I don't think about what I eat anymore. That, so. That's what I, I like to tell people too, is to shift their focus away from their diet and nutrition, yeah. especially if they're trying to achieve goals in that space, in that realm of their fitness. Mm-hmm. It sounds so counterintuitive, but it's usually what works because when you're always obsessing over what you're eating and or your specific goal, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to get down to 9% body fat. I have to do this. I have to lose 14 pounds or whatever. Then people that think that way rarely ever get there. It's when they dial in what you're doing where you kind of every day it's on autopilot and you're focusing on other things. That's when you actually start hitting your goals and you're not in a rush because you're patient about it. You're like, you know, I'm going to spend like six months, 12 months, probably get to my goal, but I'm in no rush. No, right. I'll get there. And it's not like it's this draining ordeal. <laughs> just, right, too, too. It's like set it and forget it. Just learn the right way to do it and just put it on autopilot and get there in six months and done. So you mentioned fat was toxic. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Because you know, hear a lot of things about fat is estrogenic, which has this contrasting relationship with testosterone. And you also hear that fat stores toxic. So when you're saying like fat is disruptive of testosterone, what exactly do you mean? So basically, it's again, it's kind of complicated. But when you have a higher level of body fat, it holds on to chemicals. It's like actually a really great place to store chemicals and just like the shitty stuff in the food that you're eating that gets you fat in the first place. So there's no wonder that a lot of people who are very overweight have very bad skin, very bad sleeping issues, 
that sort of thing. There's actually a lot of chemicals in, in the body fat, especially like stomach fat. Really what it ends up doing is acting as an endocrine organ, which is really kind of an odd thing, but like your fat is actually secreting hormones because there's just so much going on in it. It's like a living organ. It's kind of nasty to think about. So when you have all this foreign stuff, you know, kind of introduced to your endocrine system, again, that's like a very complex interplay of feedback loops, then it starts kind of disrupting things. You start having a lot of GI issues. You have a lot of psychological issues, depression, anxiety, that sort of thing, because it's also influencing your gut, which your gut is a very important thing. I haven't really talked about it yet, but basically people call your gut your second brain because there are like 100 million neurons in your gut which is crazy. And a neuron's like a nerve cell. It's like your brain cells. You know, I have all this foreign body fat that's directly influencing actually your gut as well. So your, your gut is then communicating with your brain and then you, it throws off basically a lot of these feedback loops that are working in your body. So that's kind of what I mean. It's this toxic thing. People know body fat's not a great thing to have, a bunch of it, you know, so. Yeah, what I want to make sure we've done here, which I think we've done, is like give guys a bit more clarity on why it's a bad thing. Because the more reasons you have to start taking action, the better. Through this discussion, if they learn that, ah, fat is also bad for my testosterone, it doesn't look good as well, right? And all these other things. And we've got eight reasons to do it. It makes it easier to do. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's also estrogenic and, you know, it kind of spurs on the production of estrogen. Guys have problems with their man boobs. I guess, I think it was called, it was like, I forgot the exact medical term for it. But when men... Gynocomastia or something? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, they start developing the man boobs. And that's actually a product of having this excess body fat where it's secreting estrogen. So that's that's kind of a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, estrogen is the opposite of testosterone. Is it, There's actually a, a kind of a discorrelation between it, right? It's like a negative correlation between the two? Like somewhat, yeah. It's mm. it's a little more complicated than just like a direct one to one. But I'd say actually more um, more of a direct uh, negative correlation is actually cortisol with testosterone. Aha, aha, right. Well, let's to kind of finish on from the diet thing. I know one of the big things you recommend is cholesterol, which also has kind of a weird reputation in the world of health, especially if you're watching TV and the media and everything. You know, for the last thirty, forty years. Uh, cholesterol has been something to avoid. So, you know, eggs, steaks, anything else that they saw that had uh, high levels of cholesterol in it. So what is your point about cholesterol and testosterone? So cholesterol pretty simply is just the precursor to all steroid hormones in your body. So when you have really low levels of cholesterol being produced in your body and coming in through dietary cholesterol, you are going to have issues with your steroid hormones in your body. So everything from testosterone, cortisol, estrogen, uh, they're like a million different ones. Or not a million, but I think they're like 20. But any kind of androgen, essentially, mm. that's being produced, cholesterol is a precursor to it. So you want to have a good level of cholesterol in your body at all times because it's one of the most important compounds that, that you can have naturally in balance. I would say also that this anti-cholesterol thing that has been happening for the last couple of decades has also a lot to do with the average decline of testosterone in men because they are so directly related. Yeah, because if you look at the products in the supermarket, it's low-fat everything, which also means like low cholesterol in a lot of the time. You know, I was taking low-fat products for a while. I'm sure everyone was because I kind of grew up with that. When I was a teenager, everything was getting into low-fat. So all the products you were picking up 
all the brands were starting to be low fat. All the advertising, everything for that was low fat. So you're automatically taking that. So I think it could definitely be in somewhat linked to the testosterone decline because everyone's been doing it, whether they actually were doing it actively or not, just by the nature of the products that were in the supermarkets and everything. Exactly. Yeah. And that's something that honestly, it's like a huge red flag when you look at it in hindsight. It's like, oh, if all the marketing and everything that was being put on the shelves to sell is jumping on this trend, it kind of throws up a red flag where you think, oh gosh, I should have known. I should have known that it was really just something that we, we go through these cyclical trends of trying to sell a bunch of product to a lot of people. But stuff like food is so important and detrimental when these uh, big booming trends just kind of overtake an entire industry. That means that it overtakes entire populations. And then we're going to see these issues like having a lot of guys, even in their 20s, and 30s with low testosterone because they grow up in these kind of situations. Right. To give, to give guys a clear example here, do you track your blood markers like LDL, HDL, total cholesterol and stuff like that? Yeah, I did a little bit with the, the cholesterol numbers. Mm -mm. Well, I, I do too. I've been doing it for a long time. And what would you say is your diet on a typical day in terms of cholesterol? What kind of cholesterol things? Usually I just get my cholesterol from meat. Mm -hmm. I'm I usually go on steak or chicken, dark meat chicken, get some skin, also some butter. I used to eat a lot of eggs. I eat eggs more infrequently now just for personal taste reasons because I ate so many before. You know, I'll have omelets, go to, go to IHOP or diner and get some omelets. That's really, you know, the extent of the cholesterol. It's not that complicated. It's like red meat, dark fatty meat, some dairy or some eggs. Right. So mine's pretty similar. I'll just give my example as comparison. I typically have about six eggs focused on the yolks, actually, because the egg whites are for me and some people are, can be allergenic. So maybe to have six eggs every day and have the whites as well could pose a problem down the line. So I'll just have the yolks to get the cholesterol and so many other benefits of the yolks because they're full of stuff. I have steaks quite often, maybe three, four times a week, a lot of that good fatty stuff there. So that's kind of like the main sources of cholesterol I have. And I guess with your numbers, since I've been doing this for a couple of years or so, my HDL's up, my LDL's down kind of steadily over time. I haven't seen the reason we're supposed to be avoiding cholesterol is because our LDL is supposed to go up, right? Which is bad. Yeah. Did you see that when you were looking at that? Did your LDL go up a lot or? Not really. Mine have always been pretty balanced. They're always just mm. like within the range. Don't fluctuate a whole lot. Excellent, excellent. So hopefully that, you know, makes guys feel a bit more comfortable about that. So, you know, it's a good part about diet there with the testosterone. The other thing I just wanted to touch on is, have you seen any kind of research or anything when, when you were looking into this about how attracted women are to you based on your testosterone levels? Oh, yeah, this is interesting. I read a decent amount of stuff on people talking about like a pheromone effect. And I've actually, a funny story, like my dad gave him the book, I've been trying to teach him exactly what he has to do because he's 50 years old. He's been having low testosterone issues. It was funny because like his initial reaction, I guess, was to just take hormone therapy from the doctor, like the gels. Mm. It was funny because when he started taking it, my mom and my sister were like, oh my gosh, I can tell when he's like in the garage, like about to come into the house. They just can smell it, which was really interesting. Uh, that's, and, was and like stuff like a, called androgel? Yeah, androgel. And it smells bad? No, they say it in a good way. They're like, oh my gosh, dad's home or Randy's home. You know, it's like <laughs> they, they can't wait to have him around just because it's like this super attractive smell. And I'm like, what are you guys smelling? Because wow. I, I don't smell any of it. I don't smell this stuff, which it's interesting because there's something there where the women really can tell. 
And that makes sense evolutionarily too. It's like kind of a marker of fertility, protective man kind of thing. But in terms of what I've read, I, I read basically there was some kind of effect where the men with normal and good, good testosterone range are going to have a more of a presence with women than, mm. than guys without it. And that, honestly, that kind of just makes sense with like the way a guy carries himself. It, may, it might have to do with pheromones. It might not. I don't know. What I saw is they haven't done these exact studies and controlled them where they're just looking at testosterone and they're looking at attractiveness. What I saw is this, uh, the, the study where they got these handkerchiefs and they gave them to guys and, you know, they kind of rubbed themselves with the handkerchief so it got their smells and their pheromones or whatever is, is on them. And then they gave it to some different women and they just told them to rate the handkerchiefs, you know, based on how attracted they thought they were to the men. And what they did see was that the more genetically different you were, to the woman. So they kind of looked at it from this genetic difference standpoint. So you're looking for something that's more genetically different. So I, I kind of saw that, but I felt that it was probably also linked to the testosterone levels. Yeah. I mean, cause there'd be some kind of a musk, like men kind of give off, you give off something, there's something going on. I, I know I've experienced it personally too with, you know, I was with a girl guy. I, I don't think I had showered all day or something, but she just, she was like, oh my gosh, you smell so good. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I smell good. <laughs> I haven't taken a shower today. Right. She was like, I just can't. I just want to like smell your skin. You just smell so good. I was like, I don't smell anything, but you know, that's fine with me. But there's, there's something there. I don't, I don't really know to put my hand on it. There's, there's something there. This is anecdotal as well. But what I noticed when I picked up my testosterone a bit, I was getting noticed more. There was more girls coming up to me. I'd be sitting in a cafe, they'd come and sit next to me more often and start fluttering their eyelids or whatever. So that was something I noticed for sure. And I remember like discussing my friends about it at the time. So it's kind of something I believe in, but I don't think that, like you said, I'm not sure there's any direct research related to this yet. So it's a bit anecdotal, but I mean, I'm a believer in it. Yeah, there are a lot of stories on it. Well, even the pheromone thing is contested. You know, people are like, are these things real? In the actual research, it's hard to kind of pinpoint how effective a pheromone influences on something. But there are a lot of like animal things that, that happen via pheromones, or at least they think it's pheromones. Like ants will leave uh, like a pheromone trail and other ants will follow it and that sort of thing. So, Chris, this is great stuff. Thanks for coming and talking all about this test run stuff because I think it's something that could help a lot of guys out there you know, on the biology aspect of their inner game and confidence when it comes to the whole dating, sex, and relationships with women, you know, meeting women, attracting them, as we've spoken about a bit here in their sexual life and relationships and so on. There's a question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and I'm going to ask you this question. What are your top three recommendations to men wanting to have a better lifestyle from a dating, sex, and relationships angle? The top three things you would recommend they do. Good question. Okay, so let's see. First, I would say, just to draw back on what we were talking about earlier, one of the things, I think you're going to have the most successful relationships in your life when you are in a state of very ambitious uh, state with your own personal life, independent of those relationships, where you're going after what you want, and you're kind of just taking names kind of thing, kicking ass, taking names, whatever, in another sphere that really drives you and ignites a passion in your life. And then that's when other aspects of your life, like your relationships and your dating, are going to come more effortlessly because you're going to be a lot more self-confident. That's probably just at the root of everything. It's just like having a lot of self-confidence, but you can't really develop that self-confidence unless you have a part of your life that's doing the developing. Uh, and you might not agree with this, but like, I don't think dating itself 
is a great way to develop self-confidence. I think like having other parts of your life that you are using to develop that self-confidence, namely something like entrepreneurship or uh, education or whatever, those are great ways to develop the self-confidence that kind of just radiates out of you. And then you go to those relationships and you start developing relationships with people and dating. And it just becomes a lot easier because you are your own man. You know who you are. That's, that's one thing. Second, I think mutual respect always. That's something that a lot of people just take for granted. People are out to serve themselves. You know, it's, it's something naturally all of us want to fall into. We have self-preservation mechanisms. But when you're in a relationship, and I've made mistakes with this in the past too, I think everyone has, where you don't always keep that in mind. You know, you're dealing with another human being too. So always really have that mutual respect for them. Just be on a level playing field. And something we mentioned earlier with the expectations, don't go into a situation where you know the expectations are going to be completely uh, off kilter between you and the other person. I, I think that's just a recipe for hurting somebody. So it's not a good thing. The last one is really just always have honesty in the relationship. And that just kind of ties into what I was just saying. If it comes to a point where the expectations aren't in line, and maybe they were in line to begin with, but they become off kilter, you really need to be honest with the other person and say like, okay, let's, let's just take a really common example. Like uh, she falls in love with you and you're, you don't feel the same way. I really just advocate being honest with her and just being like, look, I can tell you're really falling in love with me, but you know, I'm not feeling that way toward you right now. And I just want to be honest and tell you that. When you can say that, instead of kind of stringing a girl along, whether you're scared of that fact that she's in love with you or whether you're going to take advantage of it, I don't think either of those are good. I think you should just be honest and open and then nothing but good things can come out of the honesty. Even if it's a breakup, it's still a good thing because you're being honest with her and yourself. Those are some great points, man. Thank you very much for those. What I love about those is that they're quite different to some of the other ones we get on the show. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do here is get a broad array of good quality responses to, to these things. On your first one, we kind of said, maybe I wouldn't think the same way. I think it may be a little bit different to you, just, just for the, the conversation. I think there's like confidence is on two levels. There's your overall kind of confidence level. So in your life, you have this overall well-being feeling and you're feeling great about your life and you're confident about in, in general, which I think was kind of the point you were looking at. But we also have what we're doing, activity-specific confidence. If we're doing something new, we tend to, even if we do have a, a great deal of confidence, which is going to allow us to do better in that regardless. There's also this aspect of specificity or of the confidence on a new task or the activity or the situation. It can be useful to kind of work on that, especially when it's new to you, to gain confidence in that area. And then when you've got both, you've got the confidence in that area and you've got this overall life confidence, then that's when you're really getting the most out of everything. But I think there's always this confidence curve, basically anything new. I mean, even if you have great confidence, we all kind of go through this learning curve, anxiety and frustrations with something new. And I, I love some of the guys out there who are pretty famous and they're doing well and they get out there and say, hey, like yesterday I was so frustrated. One of the examples I'm thinking of right now is the series, the Tim Ferriss experiment, yeah, where each episode he has to learn something new, right? And he's put into basically a new situation. And I'm comparing this to dating because like anything we're learning in, in life is like a skill set and getting used to a situation and stuff. And if there's some things you're not used to, it's kind of like that. And so every week he's put into this completely new situation. And I saw the one where he was told like, you have to play the drums at this concert for this band you love, this famous band, right? And what I loved about it was you saw his 
halfway through this huge frustration and anxiety had about like screwing up and not being able to do it. And I think all of us go through that area and we're not confident at that stage. And we're like wondering, oh, like, is this all going to hit the fan and go to hell? So I think any, any new situation and like Tim Ferriss is obviously a, a pretty confident guy because he, he's done well in a lot of things now. But, you know, it's nice to see that when he's doing something new, he still comes across those same feelings and lack of confidence. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. I mean, I totally agree that there are two different verticals in terms of developing confidence. I guess, yeah, the point I was making that it was you can't entirely develop your confidence yeah. in, in one or the other. It's got to be both, really. You have to have that activity-specific stuff and just the overall confidence in your life. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And it's typically what guys in this area of their life, they'll work first on the kind of dating confidence, which I guess is a bit more practical because like you're talking about long-term, we should all be working to develop our lives. And I think it's good that you brought this up because some of the guys, they'll forget about the other aspect of their life. They're just like, I'm just going to focus on my dating and develop confidence and develop skills and whatever in that area. But you'll get to this crisis point where it's not working at all for you and you're not getting more satisfied and you're getting less satisfied and everything's not working because you can even end up sabotaging. I've seen guys do this quite a lot, actually. You'll end up sabotaging the rest of your life and undermine your confidence because you're not doing the other stuff we were talking about earlier. And so taking the focus off the rest of your life, which is the point you're making is important, can actually sabotage your dating confidence because then you don't have that confidence of your natural life to lean back on. Yeah. And also like a lot of people who only focus on something like dating and they forget the rest kind of just put it in the background and don't think about it. They're not actually that interesting to talk to. So at a like conversational level, they're going to hit a wall as well. Because when you run out of experiences in your life and to draw upon when you're having a conversation, you run the risk of becoming boring. Exactly. And I'll tell you exactly where this hits, guys, because I see it all the time. It's when they want to go to the relationship stage, when they want a girlfriend rather than just meeting a girl for a one night stand or, you know, for a short fling. Girls, they, they quickly find out that there's not much going on in the guy's life because he's not talking about much, right? Then the guys will be like, I can't get a girlfriend. I'm, I'm seeing loads of girls, but I can never get girlfriends. And that's what I want now. And so guys, if you're out there and this is kind of your problem, this is one of the huge kind of factors behind that dynamic. Yeah, I think like just having adventures in your life regularly are a good thing to combat that. You of all people would know you move a lot. So <laughs> travel around the world and do all sorts of stuff. So Yeah, and I can tell you like, because you were talking about this earlier about all the stuff, you'll differentiate your stuff from other men just by having done this. And most girls that talk to me are kind of blown away. It seems to me that there's a scarcity of guys going out there and doing different stuff. It's not like I feel like I'm doing anything special. For me, it's just like life as usual. So I'm still kind of surprised when the girls are like, wow, you know, you, you've done so much and you, you know, just being like doing what I want to do. You know, that's all it is. So it seems like to me, there's not enough guys getting out there and doing what they actually want to do. Well, and that's so attractive when you finally meet anybody who does that. You're like, oh, this person is awesome. I want to talk to them. I want to hang out with them because I want to hear their stories because they're out doing things or having experiences. Yeah. Well, man, it's great to hear. We were talking about all the stuff you're doing and, you know, it's great to hear all the stuff you're doing. We were talking about you're a musician, you know, you're into the nootropics, you're into the neuroscience, you're, you know, you're into all of these things that you love. You're only 24 years old. That's just amazing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've been blessed to be able to figure out how to do this early on. So it's been good. I made the decision after college. I was like, nope, no more school. I'm just going to go start a company. I started a company my senior year in college. So that was like how I left college. And I never tried to go get jobs and that sort of thing. Just tried to start a company. And that first one, we actually failed miserably. Just so I'm not painting like too rosy of a picture. We lost a ton of money. Right. <laughs> I did that too with my first companies. <laughs> 
you know, we don't want to paint this picture of like, oh yeah, just so easy, just go start a company. The first one or two, you're just going to completely screw it up. And that's usually how everyone does it. But you learn a ton and then it puts in your mind, it gives you that bug where you're like, I'm going to always just go after whatever I want. Yeah. I think that's a really healthy mindset, at least in my opinion. But Yeah, no, I'm completely with you. Even though it sucks at the time, you'll look back and you'll know that those were turning points, you know, for you and they changed your life. And it didn't all suck either because it's always like fun in a way, especially if you've got a partner, you know, you've got a business partner who happens to yeah. be one of your friends or something. You can look back on those times and like, they were fun, despite, you know, it, it was tough and a lot of stuff didn't go your way. They're still fun times and it's worth the experience. Yeah, exactly. I had a couple of business partners and we became incredible friends through all the crazy stuff that was going down. Like at the time, we were all so stressed out and everything. And But now we're such tight friends that it's all worth it, you know? Yeah, it's one of those bonding experiences where, you know, you're in something together, but fighting to that same goal. It's a great bonding experience for that too. Exactly. So Chris, this has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You know, I think you're a great role model for the guys out there based on your life and what you're doing. So I didn't like think of that when we, we got you on the the podcast, but it's been great talking to you from that perspective as well. Great to have you on the podcast. I hope you continue doing what you're doing and continue giving an example out there. Thanks, dude. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a really outstanding conversation. So thank you. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.